This is Mind Speak. I'm your host, Holly Higgins, a hypnotherapist and a total nerd when it comes to all things holistic mental health. I'm here to help you use the power of your mind to become happier, healthier, and more of who you really are. Let's go. Welcome back to the show. Today's episode is one I have wanted to record for a long time. So we are talking all about how to encourage the development of healthy subconscious beliefs in children, because our deepest, most fundamental beliefs about the world are formed in childhood, especially between the ages of zero and eight. And there is so much influence that parents and caregivers can have when it comes to nurturing a healthy, confident belief system in kids. But on the flip side, this topic can bring up a ton of parenting guilt, especially when we start looking at the wounds of our own inner child, of our little selves, when we realize that stories like, I'm not lovable, I'm not enough, I'm not worthy, were ones that we likely created when we were little bitty. We then feel the pressure to make sure this doesn't happen to our kids and we don't pass that stuff on. And that's a lot. (laughs) That is a lot of pressure. So since I am not yet a parent myself in this lifetime anyway, I wanted to bring on one of my favorite parenting role models and one of my favorite people in the whole world, my dear friend and colleague, Kristen Willis of Luminous Spirit. Kristen, welcome to the show. Thank you, Holly. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So before we dive in, and I know you and I joke about this all the time, tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do, if that's even in the realm of being able to describe it to somebody. (laughs) Yeah, I feel like it's gotten to be sort of an elevator pitch at this point. So I'll give you the pitch. Okay. Um, I am a mom of three kids and um, a wife to, I call him my handsome beekeeper. Um. I do integrative family energy medicine. And so what does that mean? A lot of people are like, that's a long title. What that means to me is that I am working with people with the understanding that our spiritual selves precede our physical. And so that any experiences we have energetically, emotionally, traumas, unfelt emotions, those affect our physicality. So when I work with people energetically, it's to find the root causes of whether it's persistent pain or behavioral issues or traumas or ancestral things, we're employing a variety of integrative tools to get to the root cause of that. Wonderful. And you work with people of all ages, right? Like who, who's your typical clientele? So it is all of life. I work with pre-birth to end of life. And most of my clients, I'd say the largest demographic is probably between 30 and 70. But I've had a ton of kiddo clients, um, a resurgence of kiddo clients from when I started in the last few months, especially post-COVID, just because there have been so many behavioral issues, issues that have come up. Yeah. And I see that in my practice with the parents that I work with and just really glad to have you 
on the show as a resource for somebody who works with people of all ages, families, because I feel like you can speak to it at a depth that I have not yet waded into. And you also do subconscious work in your practice. And so you and I have that little bit of geeky fun in common is that you're also looking at the subconscious. So the fact that you do a lot of work with the subconscious and parenting and children, I was like, we've got to have around to talk about this. Oh, I'm so excited. Well, I feel like you get the language and I don't feel like someone has to be a parent to get the language. When you get that, then you could do conscious parenting. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I like to joke that I am the parent to a lot of inner children. Yes. <laughs> and oh my gosh, doing inner child work with myself and my clients. Like when I do become a parent, it's like, when we tap into the needs of our little selves, it informs so much about how to parent a real child. It does. Yes. Yes, it does. And to me, that's where the real parenting begins is that willingness to connect to self mm. because they're walking around living their little experiences, just being them. And by them being themselves, it is often triggering to the parts of us that never got to be themselves. <laughs> and so they're really walking teachers. And so while we think we're the ones doing the conscious parenting, they're actually the ones very unconsciously and also wisely because they came here to do it, walking us through mom's going to need to revisit this thing from when she was 12 by me having a huge issue with uh, you know, tech time or friend restrictions. And so it's so, um, it's a really wise journey and one that most parents don't expect because we tend to think I'm the parent, I'm the one doing the parenting. And they're really guiding us in so many deep spiritual subconscious ways. Oh my goodness. I can't wait to dive into that more with you, but conscious parenting, I want you to tell me what does conscious parenting mean to you? What is the concept of conscious parenting and how can we practice it? Yes, I love this question. And I think that everyone who works with kids might have a slightly different answer, but I'm going to give you what I feel we would all agree upon. So to me, conscious parenting is parenting each child with the intentional focus on building mutual trust, a sense of safety, a space for curiosity, and a container for every range of feelings. And it's built on a container and a foundation of unconditional love. And I also look at it as uh, a process. It's not, um, you know, I kind of look at it like uh, this is the way I do my hair. Well, you know, over time, I'm not going to want to do my hair the same way. And over the time with kids, their needs change. We as adults change. So it's also uh, a very fluid concept because over time you will both flex and change and our world has changed. So it's this process of constant self-reflection for better emotional intimacy with ourselves so that we can bring that into our children. And it really fosters the valuing of a child's true authentic expression of themselves over our, our meaning the parents idea or a group think idea or a family idea of who they should be. And it's very very hard. And uh, we have a really great parenting coach and mentor for our kids. And she told us once when we were in the throes of a conscious parenting debacle, um, the way you're choosing to do this is harder than the way most people parent because it involves that constant self-reflection, 
reevaluation and then re-engagement with the children in a way that fosters them owning their true authentic selves and what it reveals to parents is where we have not stepped into our true authentic selves. So it is, um, no one is pretending that this is like, I think when I hear the phrase conscious parenting, I think of like a bunch of bohemian women in the field with no bras and daisies and they're <laughs> running and their kids are trailing after them and they all just went to pick berries. And conscious parenting sometimes means your child is screaming in your face, I hate you. And you're saying, I understand you feel that way right now. Oh. And you're not punishing them for it because it is their expression in that moment. And you still give boundaries for what's acceptable and to you as a parent or a person. But it's not always beautiful, but it, it yields amazing results because children are much more free to be who they are. Mm. And you keep, you keep saying, um, free to be their authentic selves, free to be who they are, raise them in the freedom of their expression. And when I do inner child work with people, the thing that comes up over and over and over is they go back to these moments when they're really young. And the theme that always emerges is like, I have to be somebody else to get mommy's love or daddy's love. I have to put on a mask. I have to work really hard who I am is not enough. I have to be somebody else or do something more in order to receive love and approval. And it sounds like what you're saying is conscious parenting is really anchoring in this idea that who you are as a human being is enough and is okay. Yes. And it's really a, um, an emphasis on connection over control. Because most people, I'm 40, most people from 25 and up grew up in a parenting relationship, if they had a relationship, many of us didn't, where it was really more about what we needed to do or how we needed to function, or this is what our family does. And that is in a framework of control. And so when we shift into conscious parenting, it's like, you know, it's going to look really out of control sometimes, but if we're having that connection with the child and they feel seen in that moment, then that's what they're going to feel when they're 32 and switching careers or something like that. Mm, I absolutely love that. I absolutely love that. That's amazing. So one thing I want to talk about with you now is I want to dive into this idea that when we do our own inner work, which is required on the conscious parenting journey or even the conscious life journey, you know, you don't have to have kids to be doing inner work. Um, what I notice in my clients who are parents is, like I said earlier, this inner work can bring up a ton of guilt because we look at our own inner wounding. And we realize beliefs and perceptions that we formed as children, you know, being little bitty and saying, I'm not enough. I have to do more. I'm not lovable. We realized we formed these beliefs when we were often really, really, really young. And then what the mind of a parent often does is it says, oh my gosh, I've probably totally ruined my kids. They're going to need years of therapy. <laughs> so when it comes to this, what words of wisdom would you have for a parent who is feeling this guilt of like, how do I not screw up my kids? <laughs> yeah. I think the answer to that is twofold for me. Um, so my brain is going in a few different directions for sure. 
So the first thing is um, we can't ever say to someone, you know this from your work, oh, don't feel guilty. It's not your fault. That's like, that is just useless. I'm sorry. When I hear that, it just pisses me off. But I do. You know, what I can say, there's this really, really beautiful concept. Um, one of the ancestral techniques that I like to use, and I'm saying this because I adore it so much is called family constellations work. I'm training in that. I'm not a, a licensed facilitator yet, but in the training, something that I've learned so far, and just for people who don't know, family constellations is a system of doing ancestral healing, or, I mean, you can really do it on any, any things that need balancing, but it's based on the principle that everything in time and space is held in the quantum field, all interactions, and that um, even when other people cross into whatever they cross into, whatever your belief is, that there's a record of that held in the quantum field. And so in doing the work of learning how family dynamics played out or where someone might be holding tension that's of family members, there's this beautiful concept of um, when we work with parents who have crossed, whether it's grandparents or immediate parents, I will not deny my child their fate. And the first time I heard that phrase, it was like, was deeply comforting and I felt it go through every cell of my body. And it has come in handy so many times when I'm feeling that we were not conscious parents when we started raising our kids. We were quite the opposite. We were very unconscious. And so there was a lot more consequence giving. There was a lot of yelling and when I feel, when the part of me that has that guilt sees the part of me that parented then and just thinks of all the shoulds, mm. I say, I will not deny myself my fate or my child my fate, which to me in layman's terms is it's all a part of our story. Mm. So even if I did a really crappy job at some points, which I did, I can have compassion on that version of myself and say, what I did is something my soul allowed me to do and that my child was in agreement with, or it wouldn't have happened. So that's like level one of the guilt. I think the second part of the guilt is just owning that we're on an evolving process and that it's going to be ever unfolding and we're human and we mess up. And when I can focus on my own journey and know I am doing the work with my wounds and triggers and all of it, um, I recommend that every single parent I see, every single one, so that no one ever feels singled out, buy the ACA Yellow Workbook. And if someone doesn't know what that is, it's adult children of alcoholics and dysfunctional families because it is a handbook to your own inner process. So when I know, you know, there's still guilt, I still feel it sometimes. I had guilt that this summer has gone by quickly and we've had a lot of unexpected things that have not made it really an ideal summer for kids. I stepped back and went, oh, this is all unfolding as it should. And I know that I'm doing my own inner work. So it's a, like, there's really not a fatal wound. It's it, everything can be healed. And the more I do my work energetically, it heals my children and my ancestors, even if none of them are aware of it. Mm, I love that. And what I'm hearing is you're, you're talking about wounding as part of the sacred path. Yeah. And so children, they're, they're going to be wounded. They're going to fall down and scrape their knees. They're going to get their hearts bruised. Um, 
you know, we're all going to have bumps and scratches in this life and really bumps and scratches and heartbreak and all of the icky stuff. It's not to be avoided. It's part of our sacred path. I mean, imagine if, imagine going through life and having no lessons to learn and no obstacles to overcome, which is, I think the expectation that some parents have is like, let me provide this perfect cushy childhood or childhood for my kids and make sure they never get hurt. But then how are they going to learn and grow if they don't have those wounds? Yes. Yes. It, that's the, I will not deny my child their fate. It's, I think it's hard too, as they get older to see them learning difficult lessons with friends. So whether it's a relationship that doesn't go well, and as a protective parent, you're going, well, what's wrong with my child? They're amazing. Who would want to break up with them? Or whether they're smaller things like a big disappointment or a realization about the harshness of life. It's all meant to be. There's a great, um, I really like Toko Pa Turner. She's written the book Belonging. And um, I've been a student of that book for a few years. And I just gleaned from it the concept that just everything belongs and so if I'm having an off week or in my family's case, an off summer, <laughs> everything belongs. And so maybe my children are doing things this summer that they wouldn't any other because we've had to shift things around a little bit. Everything belongs. If I'm feeling anger come up toward my child because of something they did or said, or I'm feeling frustrated, I do need to look in at what that's, what that's triggering in me. And everything belongs. So I will say everything belongs is not meant to be spiritual bypassing where we're neglectful of our inner selves or our children's needs, but it is a very helpful comfort tool when we are shifting into guilt and self-blame quite a bit. I love that. So it's not like go out there and wound your children on purpose. <laughs> oh, the <laughs> wounds are the medicine. No. <laughs> I'm going to double down on wounding. It's not that. <laughs> Good to double down on wounding. That's amazing. <laughs> it's a tool. It's a tool for self-compassion. Yeah. And something that's an interesting phenomenon that I've encountered since being a mom, but even more since doing um, my, my integrative healing work is when we are having um, tension, difficulties, issues, you know, you name whatever, fill in the blanks with your child. And you're really noticing it. I mean, as parents, when we have grown up in a control home and it's like, well, they just won't do what I want. A really great tool is to examine your inner child's feelings at that age, which I know sometimes I've done with you, Holly, with yes. work. but it is really like you kind of just can't go wrong. Every time I have an issue with my child, with whether it's something like a backtalk or what I feel like is not listening. As soon as I go, okay, do, 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 what was happening? Oh, I didn't really feel listened to at all. Oh, I really feel like I had to be forceful to get my voice across. So this journey is like a really a cool dance when we can look at it that way of rediscovering parts of us that really need light shed on them. And when we do that, it is incredible how the tension with the child dissolves. That's awesome. I often see this path as like this spiral circuitous path where our spiral path overlays with our child's spiral path. And like you said, if, if they're three or they're seven and, and something's really coming up with them at three or seven, ask yourself, what was going on with me at three or seven? And people often have these huge light bulb moments I have on my intake form, how many kids do you have? How old are they? And what, what are their names? Because I want to know the ages 
of a client's children because I want to know what kind of triggers might be happening for them. <laughs> yes. And something that is really neat, um, I what I've found overwhelmingly um, that is so beautiful and hopeful is how much more conscious our generation is about wanting to be mindful about what our children need. And something that I often try to encourage my parents that I work with um, is I'll say, you know, you're here for your child and you're really concerned about, you know, whether it's a behavioral issue or maybe it's a trauma they experienced and your child is actually going to heal exponentially if you do the work. And there's this amazing phenomenon that psychology and modern medicine have not honored because it's not measurable, but parents and children share a greater quantum field or a morphogenic field or an energy field, whatever you want to call it. We each have our own little bubble. Kids have their own. And then especially moms and their kids, but sometimes dads too, share a field together. So what's in one person is in everybody. And what we heal for one, we heal for everybody. But I see exponentially larger results when parents do the work and their kids will have issues just quote, go away which is really because that, that energetic effect, that ripple effect is felt. That's wonderful. Clear it in the parent. It often gets cleared in the child Yeah, and vice versa. Um, sometimes, but I find that the parents mature observation of whatever it is, it's like, because they are aware of consciously of whatever the process is that they can clear it. Gotcha. But for kids who do energy work, they just clear crazy fast, no matter what, because they have so many less years of subconscious plaque, gunk, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Can you talk about that for a minute? This concept that children clear, especially quickly. I'd love for our listeners who are parents to hear more about that because I just find it so hopeful. Yeah. Well, I think there's some uh, multiple factors in that. What I've noticed um, is that uh, a, a dear friend of mine once was talking about generations having different soul lessons. That was really new to me and cool, but it resonated. It talked about our generation being um, our soul lesson was on intentional connection. And I was like, yes, I hear you. So I don't know what the next generation or the generation after that is, but I will say that as I work with children now, they're a much more hardy brand of souls. Mm. <laughs> they're not as easily wounded. They're m much more difficult to parent because they are fully in their soul selves. And so I think the combination of that and that they are newer to being on earth, <laughs> I think those two things play out together. I think if I'm, you know, the age that I am and almost midlife, I've had this many years to accumulate mom and dad's beliefs, society's opinions of what I should be. Uh, maybe I'm in a relationship and I've absorbed some of those beliefs. So it's got a lot. I, I tend to use the visual of like plaque in arteries or like the liquid plumber commercial when you see all the <laughs> gunk. <laughs> I'm like energy work gets the gunk out. Totally. Um, yeah. It's, I think sometimes visuals are helpful. And so I just kind of look at kids like the pipes are pretty clean. There's not a lot accumulated. So with kids, what I see more often than not when there's an issue is if there was a trauma, of course, we need to clear the effects of the trauma. If it 
involved a parent and that's furthering those effects or a parent's emotions and their own baggage, kids feel that, but they clear it quickly. And more often than not, kids need to clear ancestral trauma. And so they're carrying something. Um, I had a really neat session once where kids, uh, kids also feel parents' projections a lot, but they clear them very quickly. So as soon as we can own what it is and kids get moving, um, I'm kind of rabbit trailing a little bit, but kids will really clear quickly. I had a newborn client that was experiencing constipation, which for a newborn is an issue. You know, it's really an issue for anybody, but the child's was holding the mother's apprehensions about birth and motherhood. And it looked like a giant hairball in their, in their intestines. And so the mother like say how safe it is to feel, how lovely it is to feel, um, that it's delightful to be a mother, that it's safe to have her feelings and that baby's little intestinal energetic hairball just dissolved. And after the session, I said, please text me when they poop. And so we, I got a text later that day that said, we have a BM. <laughs> <laughs> and I've never been happier to get that text. Um, but I think kids are also, right now, kids are so resilient that they're, they respond quicker than we did just because we had a lot more to clear. Yeah. That's an amazing st- story, first of all. Um, so, so cool how energy work translates to the physical and yes, kids, it's just, it's kind of like how kids learn a new skill very quickly. They are nimble, they are resilient. And so something that we're going to have to work through a lot of plaque to clear a kid can clear much more quickly. Yeah. Yeah. And kids are, um, I think you would probably attest to this when you work with individuals, they really have very basic needs that when not met form a lot of complex issues. Mm. And so to me, children's basic needs are to be, they want our presence, they would like our attention, and they want to be witnessed. And those things and heard. So when those things are not met, then we would have what I would call, quote, issues. And it's really a basic need not being met. And the other thing that's helpful is that kids' native language is feelings and parents' native language is thinking. And so Mm. kids are super heart-based. Parents are always in our head like, what are you upset about? Well, a child cannot cognitively share what they're upset about with you, but, but they do relate if you ask, how are you feeling? Or are you having some feelings right now? So I also think for parents, um, a lot of the journey of conscious parenting is normalizing feelings and not giving them polarized labels of good or bad. And that requires the parent themselves to be okay with their own feelings, which is hard for a lot of us. Yeah, absolutely. Do you have any resources that you'd recommend on allowing a child to feel and and being a witness to that feeling. I'm just curious and we can always throw them in later. Yeah. So the first is, um, on the website, generation mindful, and they are actual cards and the cards come as a set, kind of like the game memory from when we were kids. And it is, um, visual pictures of kids of all diverse backgrounds, um, with faces that depict an emotion. So if a kid can't read, they can see a face like frustrated, worried, scared, proud, brave. Um, They're great for when a child is having, we just call it having feelings, 
um, in our house. But when a child is having feelings and they're having frustration and as a parent, sometimes we need to go somewhere and the feelings aren't coming at a convenient time. Are you having a feeling right now? Do you want to, and, and if they can't put a voice to it, do you want to show me how you're feeling? It's really helpful because they are visual. Um, the other book that helps is called The Whole Brain Child. And I'm not remembering the author at the moment. But that is helpful for understanding. You know, we've got the energetic and spiritual emotional component and then physiologically and neurologically what kids are capable of. And I like The Whole Brain Child because it merges. This is a child's neurology. This is what it's doing at different ages. And then if you have a brain and can read that, you can realize what's reasonable to expect from a child. And it's also huge if someone doesn't have kids to read to be like, wow, my parents were expecting me to be at age 25 when I was six. Oh, mm. maybe that's where some of my wounding came from because it uses this great system of a ladder or floors of a house as an analogy. And when kids are little, they are kind of at that bottom layer, which is primal and emotional. And as they get older, they can kind of climb the layers of communication to effectively communicate. So when we realize kids are mostly at that bottom and they can't regulate, they just kind of go up and down, then we can meet them where they are. That's awesome. I'm going to look both of those up and we'll link them up in the show notes. I've seen those cards on your Instagram stories and they're so cute. Mm -hmm. Kids love them. Yeah. So you and I both do a lot of work with clients when it comes to the subconscious. And one of the biggest questions that I get is how can we support the development of healthy subconscious beliefs in our children? What do you have to say on that topic? That's a really great question. Um, I would say to that, that we do what we can through the process of parenting to prevent emotional accumulation. So just like that plaque analogy, I would say, and I would love to hear what you have to say about it with your work. I think that when we find big roadblocks, whether it's with being consistent or being responsible or freedom to feel emotions, it came from an accumulation of, I couldn't feel my emotions, or it came from mom and dad were never consistent. Therefore I never had a model. And my reality is life is inconsistent. Um, and so in order to help that, something that's helped me is understanding that kids process through movement and using their hands. This was new to me. Um, so when my kids are having big feelings, um, I will, most of them at the early ages, clearly, if you say, what do you need right now? They will just cry or continue to have their fit, but offer them tools often. So if my kids are having some difficult feelings, I'll say, do you want to run around the house outside a couple times? Do you want the kinetic sand? We can get paints out. Um, you can see me since we're on Zoom, but I have this little cart that I got at Ikea that's just all the art stuff. And so sometimes when my kids will come in from school, they won't even say a word to me. They will get that art cart, roll it out and get paints going, process their day that way without ever saying a word. And then they're fine. They're good to go. They'll get a snack or whatever. But I think as parents, allowing space for them to have those tools is really, really key. Um, and often we won't even know if that's what they're doing, but if they have the tools, they'll be processing somehow thoughtfully. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree with that more. I wish you guys listening could see this art card. It looks so fun. <laughs> I get kind of geeky with it this week. We bought the multicultural um, markers that Crayola put out and 
Got a whole bunch of new pencils. I think I had way more fun. Oh my God. I was about to say my inner, my inner child is so delighted right now. Cause that was my favorite thing to do. And I, well, I had many favorite things to do, but I loved creating and making art. And so I just, I just want to play with those things. Yeah. So the other tool beside, um, using, using hands that taps directly into subconscious without actually having to do, um, quote sessions with kids is dream work. Because dreams are so symbolic of what's happening in the subconscious, just normalize talking with your kids about their dreams or painting their dreams. Even if you are not someone who understands dream work, your kids will process because they are wise on a higher level and a deeper level. And so if, you know, sometimes they'll have a huge dream and I'll go, do you want to paint it? Let's paint our dreams together or let's talk about our dreams. Um, And sand tray therapy is wonderful. I adore that. It's the exact same concept as dream work or art therapy with subconscious. It's understanding that what the kids play out in the tray is what's in here. Mm. There have been times where my kids have gone to sand tray therapy and I've thought something is totally up. And the sand tray therapist will say, they're doing amazing. This come look at this tray and it's, you know, fairies and rainbow bridges. And, you know, it helps to have someone who understands this stuff. And so, um, yeah. And those ways are really organic to me. It's an organic way to also normalize tapping into your spiritual self, which your kids will recognize later as a tool. Yeah. Yeah. I love all of these tools that you mentioned. So when you say what shows up in the sand tray is like what's showing up in life, does that mean like if, if a child is feeling really frantic or angry, like you're going to see that reflected in, in maybe the patterns in the sand or vice versa. Yeah. Um, I had a client who had a pretty big trauma and they went and did sand tray. I work with, um, the sand tray therapist that I use here in Nashville. I also recommend my clients too. So sometimes we'll, I'll say, Hey, how's it going with so-and-so? And they'll come back and tell me what was going on in the sand. And, um, the child's tray was filled with animals. This, this therapist I'll say is amazing and has wall to wall tiny figurines, which is both kind of creepy and also super amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Wouldn't want to be in there at night, but um, she's absolutely out of this world gifted, but this child's tray was filled with darker animals and most of them were in cages and some of the cages were buried. Oh, wow. So that really reflects a part of themselves that they couldn't ever put words to that feel a little locked up, a little unable to maybe be seen, be heard. You know, you could read into that anyway. But when you can learn, you know, anything symbolic is also literal. So if I'm seeing lots of hearts show up, oh, heart expansion, we're connecting to our heart. When I'm seeing nature and animals, and then the placement of the way the children place it in the tray. And then the same thing with the way they paint things on a page. It's very symbolic of what's going on on a deep subconscious level. That is so, so fascinating. I want to see this figurine room now. (laughs) (laughs) It is mind blowing. It's so Uh, cool. You know, there's a lot that I have to say about the development of healthy subconscious beliefs in children, because we pick up on our subconscious beliefs from all over, from our environment, from the people that we have in our lives, from culture, you know, our subconscious is basically like the rule book or the computer software that we have that says, this is how the world works. And this is what you can expect from the world. And so, I mean, that, that in and of itself could be a novel, but 
I just think one of the things that's so, so important in building healthy subconscious beliefs in kids and also building self-esteem in kids, because our Mm -hmm. self-esteem is linked back to our subconscious beliefs Mm -hmm. is always, always offering praise, helping your child notice what's going well within themselves. What do they love about themselves? What are they proud of? And mirroring that to them and then asking them, you know, for their own self-reflection and encouraging them to build themselves up and give themselves praise and having that praise also come from you. It's, I always ask the question, you know, what did you need to hear most when you were a child? What were the words that you needed to hear? So asking yourself, am I offering those loving words and am I teaching my child to say those loving words to themselves? Yes. Yes. And I find that what I do as a parent, um, often I catch myself saying you are blah, 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 blah to my child, even if it's a positive thing. Um, and so what I'll say when I correct myself is I really noticed how you listened to me when I asked you to empty the dishwasher, or if it's a younger kid, I really noticed how you listened to mommy when we said, put the crayons away are you so proud of yourself? So I'm giving them my affirmation and then, Hey, you can be proud of you for doing this thing. And I can say that a lot of adults had, were longing for the, I'm so proud of you. I'm so proud of you, which is normal and healthy to have. And we were never taught how to be proud of ourselves. So we've had to do system overhaul, you know, as we age. And so I think when kids can learn that inner language too of I'm so proud of myself or I see myself or I've really noticed how you take initiative when it's time to clean up at the end of the day or to help with your brother or sister. And I think that is so beautiful. I really love that about you. So lots of I noticed language and then it's very um, non-absolute, non-threatening. And I find I'm doing that with my spouse. Like, hey, I noticed that after you haven't slept a lot and you wake up late, you're kind of grumpy with the family, you know. So I noticed <laughs> language can be a really loving way to also say hard things like, hey, I noticed after you use the iPad for 20 minutes that sometimes you're grumpy with, you know, the family. Can we talk about that? Mm. It's really objective and it always leans into curiosity instead of making a judgment. So if we're just open and curious, everything leads to more intimacy. And I've got a great mentor. He was the first mentor of Jungian psychology and he is amazing and he is super animated and calls intimacy into me see. Mm. And, and I love it. It's so true. And that's what kids want. And that's what we all want is we want to have connection where it's into me see and where it's safe for me to have somebody see myself. So that non-judgmental language helps a lot. Um, or I'm curious why you hit your sister. Um, can you tell me a little more about that? Where we had frequently had absolutes of you did this, you are wrong. You did this, this is this way. And it I, takes a ton of time, but it's really worth it. <laughs> yeah. I love it's a subtle shift, but it's a powerful shift that you pointed out for saying, oh, I'm so proud of you for X, Y, Z. I noticed you did this. I feel like it also really helps the child to be seen. Oh, mommy's noticing me. She sees yeah. me. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. 
And they'll often ask to be seen. That's the wonderful thing about kids. I mean, I kind of joke that kids are a lot like 80-year-olds because 80-year-olds like don't give a shit about anything. Sorry if I can't swear on this. <laughs> no, you can swear all you want. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, an 80-year-old is just like, you know, my daughter never sees me and she doesn't give a shit, you know. And and kids are a little that way too. Like, I make this bracelet and you're not walking over here to see it, mom. You know, and that's where you can say, oh, I, I bet you do feel frustrated about that. Let me walk over and come look at your bracelets, you know. So they really keep us in check in a lot of ways. And sometimes it's funny and sometimes it's not at all. But they're also really good at telling us what we're doing wrong. And that's part of them having a voice is not shutting them down every time they say something unpleasant to us. And also having boundaries around how that's expressed. Yeah. Yeah. What do, so when kids talk back, um, you know, you talk about listening in a very loving way and not shutting them down, but when kids do talk back and you do need to put a boundary in place, what, what does that look like or what can that look like? Yeah. I'm going to start by saying what it doesn't look like, because what it doesn't look like to me is what builds that subconscious wounding more. What it doesn't look like is sending them away because that's what a lot of us experienced and what sending away says, you know, this Holly, of course, but what your listeners might be tuning into is sending a child away when they're having hard feelings says your feelings are not acceptable here. And then children take that in like digesting a pretty amazing nutrient rich meal, only it's not. And they take that to mean I am not acceptable here. Mm. So as wicked as a temperament might be at moments or a mood, it's really important to manage it very tenderly, which is hard because it triggers our own anger and emotions. So when that's happening, if we're not getting anywhere, I could give an example of a child who's talking back, um, you know, I really would like you to feed the dog now. Well, I'm not going to. Well, um, that is your chore for the week. And I would really like you to please feed the dog before we go to X, Y, Z. Well, I'm not going to do it. Um, I can see you're having a hard time listening to me. And we have communicated about this in the past. So I know this is not new to you. So why don't we take a break from talking to each other until we're ready to do that in a more respectful way? And and that can be whatever. Um, which, do you want to have some breakfast then do that? Or it, a lot of parenting in difficult moments is... Um, shifting attention and just redirecting. So that's normally what I offer. Why don't we take a little breather? Because when a child is really in intense emotions, I mean, there's already not a lot of rational (laughs) interaction happening, but it's really even less um, irrational. It becomes purely primal. And so when a wounded parent talks to a child that's experiencing wounding, it's often just going to keep causing more friction and think of it as an energetic charge or an electrical charge. So you're just building that static. It's sometimes a good idea to do an, I love you, but let's just take a little pause. Mm. Um, And I've got a couple kids that have followed me to not have the pause before. And I'll say, I know you're still trying to have this conversation, but I just, I love you. And I don't want to say something unkind and let's just have a little pause. And then when we can speak a little more nicely, we can come back again. And, you know, sometimes it goes well, sometimes it doesn't. That's part of the messy, everything belongs. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like that's great advice for relationships, marriages, friendships. Like that's just great peopling advice altogether. 
Well, and I've got two preteens and we often say, you know, it is a rule in our house that it is never okay to walk away from a conversation. It's okay to say when you're having a difficult time, um, but it's not ever okay to just walk away and leave it. So mm. every, every family will have their own boundaries. It's really important to be intentional about that. And a lot of boundaries you figure out by having them broken or realizing, whoa, we can't, we can't do this again. Exactly. I feel like boundaries are put in place because they had to be, if they didn't, if, if there wasn't a need for it, then the need for the boundary wouldn't have arised. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Oh, I love this conversation. As we wrap up this episode, I'm wondering what your thoughts are despite our imperfection as humans, as parents, what do you think is the most important thing we can offer our children? Our presence. Mm. There's a really great writer that I love that I think you would love too, Holly. Um, his name is Pittman, P-I-T-T-M-A-N, McGeehee, and it's M-C-G-E-E-H-E-E. He is an Episcopal priest and a contemplative, and he's a dream worker. And I found him through the Hayden Institute. They do, uh, they've got a dream school, which trains people in how to project on dreams and that whole world. But he's written this little bitty book that anybody could get through in about a day called The Paradox of Love. And... Um, in the book, he talks about three different kinds of love, present and present, present and absent, and absent and present. And so present and present would look like a parenting relationship where you are 100% present and available for your child when you are with them. And when you are not with them, they feel your presence because you've been so present when you've been with them physically. Present and not present means, and this is what most of us experienced growing up, I'm here, I pay the bills, you have clothes and food, what do you have to worry about, but completely emotionally checked out, emotionally absent. And then absent and present is a parent who's not there physically, but is connected enough to their child, their child feels that they are present when a parent is physically absent. So the child still feels some degree of security. So the goal is to be present and present. And um, I think the biggest threat to this is our devices, to be quite honest. Um, it is uh, an age where, and I'm speaking this for myself as well, where our whole lives are on our phones. You know, our phones are basically like having a computer in our back pocket now, which it shouldn't be in your pockets. That's another rabbit trail, but don't do that. <laughs> um, <laughs> keep it on a table and use your headsets. But, um, you know, so an email, my schedule is on my phone. My social media is on my phone. We have created a life where everything we need is here. And so when my children see me like this, even if they are little, their subconscious belief is it must be amazing on that little rectangular bar that they're carrying around because they're looking at it all the time. Yeah. And when we have our hands on our devices, our hands are not free for hugs, for a pat on the back, for comfort when someone's had a bump or a bruise or a sad feeling. Um, and so I think it's really imperative that this generation is aware of where our electronics are absolutely, um, it's, it's another form of an addiction. It is no different than when I see people with drug and alcohol and sex addictions, our devices have become 
um, substance abuse issues. Um, so yeah, presence, I think, is what kids need most. And I think that requires us to be honest, rigorously honest about what causes us to not be present. Yeah. The, the phone addiction piece, I'm planning on doing an episode on phone addiction at some point in the future, because it's something that all of us are becoming more and more aware of. Oh my gosh. How did I get sucked into that little square yeah. for an hour? Yeah. And will uh, there's a great book called glow kids. My children tried to hide it. That's how good it is. <laughs> Wait, and what? Why did they try to hide it? <laughs> because it's bringing awareness to how, uh, phone and device use kind of hijacks our kids' brains. I think it says on the cover, uh, bringing awareness to how devices or how screens hijack our children's brains and keep them in a trance. And so our family is getting ready to do another digital detox. I'll update you on that, but it's a great book when parents are realizing this is an issue, but what do we do to navigate it? Glow kids, you said. Kids. Mm -hmm. Okay, we'll put that in the show notes too. So, so the kids are trying to hide it because they like their screens. Is that what I'm hearing? They get so little that my kids have 20 minutes a day. That's it, which still feels like too much. But they were like, "What is this book?" And when we proposed a detox, everyone had a little bit of a meltdown. And my husband and I looked at each other and said, "This is our sign that we need a digital detox." Oh my goodness! Oh my goodness! I love it! I love it! Ah. Oh. Well, Kristen, today's conversation has been amazing. Thank you so, so much for joining us on the show and sharing your wisdom. And I want to let everybody know where they can find you on the interwebs if they're not doing a digital detox <laughs> or in person. You're a fellow Tennessean and I know you do in-person work too. So tell us where we can connect with you further. And if there's any offerings that you'd like to share with our listeners today. Yeah. Thank you for having me on today. This is fun. Um, so yeah, so I um, have an office in Franklin, Tennessee, which is just South of Nashville. I see people there at Tennessee Alternative Medicine. Um, I also have a lot of virtual clients, just that works in this day and age for availability and space for kiddos and adults. Um, my website is luminousspirit.org and you can find me on Instagram at luminous.spirit. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. Yay. Well, I will link all of the resources and all of your information up in the show notes. It has been absolutely wonderful having you. And I encourage everybody to go check out Kristen. Her work is phenomenal. You're so sweet. Thank you. I feel the same about you. <laughs> oh, thank you so much. All right, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. We will talk to you next time. <laughs>